Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to have another guest on. We're going to be talking with Jason Oaks. His website, People the Free Gift. People the Free Gift is a mission to Mormons. Jason has uh, played the role as youth pastor, college pastor, associate pastor, and senior pastor before starting this ministry, People the Free Gift. We're going to hear a little bit about uh, how he arrived at this role, kind of some of his testimony along the way. But today, as you might guess, we're going to be talking about the LDS, how to reach out and witness to Mormons. I've been going back and forth with Jason on the internet for a while now. I'm really excited to have him on. One thing I need to apologize about, though, uh, during part one of this podcast series, there's going to be two parts. During part one, we ran into some audio issues uh, using Skype to Skype. Uh, Lesson learned. I won't do that again unless I have to. Uh, But uh, yeah, you'll notice towards the end of the podcast some funny little glitches with the audio. I apologize about that. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'll try not to let that happen again. Whatever the case, uh, it is my honor to invite Jason Oaks. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. Absolutely. It is an honor. Uh, Today, friends, we're going to be talking about uh, Mormonism and, more importantly, uh, how we can reach our Mormon friends, family, neighbors uh, with the gospel, with the truth. Uh, Jason Oaks has uh, experience reaching out to Mormons, and so we're going to hear his side of, of, well, how he has found uh, success in reaching out to Mormons. So, Jason... Uh, first of all, let's lay down the Mormon plan of salvation or exaltation. Uh, you laid this out in a series of DVDs that you have, uh, reaching out to your Mormon uh, neighbor. Is that correct? Yes. First of all? Okay, and it's a six-part uh, DVD series. Very good, friends. If, if you guys want to check it out on his website, peoplethefreegift.com. Um but uh, uh, you really go in depth on this uh, plan of salvation, and I think that's really important to understand their version of salvation before we go into a conversation with them. So, yeah, what exactly is that? Yeah, well, I, I tend to get a lot of flack from LDS people whenever I put this out there on you know, Facebook or, or different things, but uh, the, the graphic that... You usually see if you go to the, the website or the YouTube uh, video and watch it is actually a graphic that is slightly adapted, um, but actually has less than what the um, Mormon, the official Mormon version is that you can find if you walk into any, you know, Deseret or Enzyme bookstore. They usually have copies that are there for you. Um, and they also do have articles on the LDS website. But uh, the Mormon plan of salvation, really, you have to start with God. And if you're coming from a Christian perspective, the God of the LDS Church is very, very different. um, Because the God of Mormonism didn't always exist. Um, He is a created being himself, and he hasn't always been God. In fact, that is Joseph Smith who first taught, uh, and then it got popularized by a later LDS prophet, Lorenzo Snow, this couplet that says, 
as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. And uh, they believe that God became a God through his obedience on, a, on another planet uh, to the LDS gospel. And, and, and we're going to get into a little bit more uh, later the, the laws of the priesthood, which have always existed. And Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of our Heavenly Father. And when you have a person, when they say Heavenly Father, it's not the same thing as what you and I mean. They literally believe that all of us human beings, everyone who's ever lived, and including actually uh, Satan and his, his demons, we all pre-existed this mortal life. And they call that the pre-mortal existence, and we are all literal spirit children of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus was that firstborn spirit child. And uh, Lucifer was another of the spirit children. And there was a council one day where uh, Elohim, which is our Heavenly Father's name, according to the LDS, he called this Heavenly Council, and he... um, and Jesus proposed his plan of salvation. Lucifer proposed his plan of salvation. And Jesus's was chosen. He was chosen to be the savior of this world. And Lucifer got very angry and he um, led a rebellion. And a third of our brothers and sisters, uh, spirit children, joined Lucifer in the fight. And... Um, when they, they joined Lucifer in the fight, their punishment was that they were cast to earth without mortal bodies. And so they remained as spirits, and that stunted, in LDS thought, their progression. They could not uh, progress any further than that point. And so then there was two-thirds of us, um, a third that fought valiantly and a third that didn't. And uh, we were all sent to this earth eventually into, uh, into uh, this life with bodies and this life we pass through the veil and so we don't remember our pre-existence and this is kind of, this is called the time of mortal probation and the purpose of this life is really for all of us to prove ourselves worthy to be able to return to heavenly father and so if we're able to uh, do just like our heavenly father did and just like Jesus did who has now become um, we are able to become a god one day. Now, after this life, uh, I believe we go to the spirit world. And the spirit world is divided up into two compartments. Uh, there's paradise where you have, basically, if you're on the right track and you're part of the LDS church and you've done some of the things you need to do, you go to paradise. And then the others would go to spirit prison. And in the LDS uh uh, plan of salvation diagram, you actually see ladders that are going in between those two because they technically believe in their doctrine that after this life, um, there's missionaries who are being sent from paradise to spirit prison, and they're preaching the Mormon gospel. And uh, if the person wants to receive the gospel after um, while they're in the spirit world, they have the opportunity to do so, but before they can start progressing in the right direction, 
there has to be work done on this life. And uh, many of you might have wondered what goes on in the LDS temples. And what happens in there is a couple of things. And one of them is called baptism for the dead. And that's where uh, the LDS members who are temple worthy, they are able to go to the temple and uh, be baptized on behalf of somebody who has been deceased. And more than likely, they're getting baptized on behalf of dead relatives and giving them a chance to accept the LDS gospel. Uh, They also get sealed as family units. Husbands and wives get sealed um, for all time and eternity in the temples. Uh, They believe families are forever and that um, you're going to be sealed as a family unit. Husbands and wives will still be married for all of eternity if we prove ourselves worthy. And so... Uh, the final stage of the whole salvation is after the sessions, we're going to be assigned to one of three places uh, for the majority of us. And uh, Joseph Smith taught that Jesus basically made it possible for everybody to go to heaven. Uh, he was very much a universalist in that sense. And so there's three levels of heaven. And the lowest level is called the Telestial Kingdom. And that's where you have um, murderers, liars, um, thieves, uh, you know, all the, the bad people um, that we would kind of maybe label in that, that category. They go to the Telestial Kingdom, which Joseph Smith said it, it was it's so glorious um, that you would you know, do almost anything to go there. And then you have the next level, that's the Terrestrial Kingdom. And quite Honestly, that's where they believe most Christians and most religious people are going to go. That's where most moral people, and quite honestly, um, most Mormons are there. Uh, because it really is like, um, if you're a good person, so to speak, uh, you go to the terrestrial kingdom. The celestial kingdom is for those who have done everything they're supposed to do in this life. They've kept all their kindness, they've all the commandments, and they go to the celestial kingdom, which, by the way, that's where they believe God the Father and Jesus are going to dwell. And so, from a Christian perspective, definition of heaven, that still be what we would define as heaven. And that's where um, those who have the possibility to progress to become gods, that's the level that they're going to go to. Now, there is one level, uh, there is one place that's not talked about a whole lot, but and that's called outer darkness. Uh, LDS don't believe in hell. They believe in a place called outer darkness, and they believe that the only people who are going to go there uh, technically are those who have experienced the fullness of the gospel and have fallen away. And uh, sometimes mm-hmm. that's verbalized as if you've left the LDS church. Uh, other people kind of don't agree with that opinion so much. But the, the thing that strikes me as I look at their LDS plan of salvation is that it doesn't show Jesus or a cross or mention the atonement anywhere, at least on the graphic. Um, you know, I've been told the LDS article uh, mentioned the atonement, but it's still all about us, our works, and how we can get back to Heavenly Father. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you mentioning outer darkness, 
Uh, and yeah, of course, it's not an official Mormon doctrine, but uh, you get this feeling that, yeah, it's kind of like a folklore, a, a little bit of like a, a, I don't know, wives' tales that pass around amongst Mormons, uh, similar to some, some other doctrines that you might find perhaps like in Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, where you've got uh, uh, um, uh, Medjugorje and these uh, visions of Mary, these types of things. So you have this weird for folklore that if a Mormon, uh, uh, after being presented with the fullness of the gospel, according to Mormonism, leaves the Mormon church, they actually go to a very specially bad place, okay? Um, and that actually probably weighs in when you're trying to reach out to your Mormon friend, neighbor, a loved one. Yeah, I've heard many LDS people, especially those who've come out of the church, who have said that that was always weighing on the back of their minds. And, and so it's, it's not so much folk folklore. It's pretty well known, and it's it's definitely a threat that kind of hangs over your head because, you know, maybe it's not a official doctrine, but it's pretty much out there, and it's pretty well known. And um, Interesting. The, the truth of the matter is that... Um, this is one of those cases, when you think about official doctrine, it's very sticky because those quotes you can find in the mouths of LDS prophets and apostles of the past in general conference, um, in very official you know, LDS you know, websites, manuals, curriculums that have all been vetted by the leadership of the church. But what I'm finding is this is why it's so important to get to know what the person you're talking to really believes, because I, Mormons and all, a lot of other groups are very much all over the map. And you can find out what their leaders have said and maybe technically what they're supposed to believe, but that doesn't mean that they, that particular person actually believes those things. Interesting. Okay. Um, another thing you mentioned, so we're not immortal. Okay, we don't extend into eternity past. Uh, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are not immortal, um, but yet the priesthood is? Yeah, so something that I didn't quite make clear is that they also believe that all of us, we existed as intelligences. And something that's very distinct uh, from Christianity is that they, the LDS God, when they create, it's not the barah, uh, out of nothing, ex nihilo thing that Christians believe. They believe that, um, almost in a sense, that all that the gods do is that they take pre-existing matter and they form it, and then they take pre-existing intelligences, and then they give birth to them as spirit children, and then give them mortal bodies. And so, wow. um, in a very real way, you and I, they would say, have existed in some form uh, for, from all of eternity. Oh, wow. Which creates all kinds of problems. I mean, you can't have an actual infinite set. I mean, you can't have matter existing from all eternity. Right. Um, it, there has to be a beginning. Uh, energy cannot be created or destroyed. 
right. short of God, of course. Uh, that's okay. That's really interesting. Okay, but yet the priesthood has always existed. What I don't get that. Now, how do they explain that? Okay, um, so the, the quote I alerted to you earlier, and I'll just uh, throw a shout out to Sandra Tanner and Bill McKeever, who, who gave me this uh, quote uh, mm. from Milton Hunter, who uh, was a, a previous uh, leader in the, the Mormon Church, and uh, he wrote in his book, The Gospel Through the Ages, he said, yes, yet if we accept the great law of eternal progression, we must accept the fact that there was a time when deity was much less powerful than he is today. Then how did he become glorified and exalted and attain his present status of godhood? In the first place, eons ago, God undoubtedly took advantage of every opportunity to learn the laws of truth, and as he became acquainted with each new verity, he righteously obeyed it. From day to day, he exerted his will vigorously, and as a result, became thoroughly acquainted with the forces lying about him. As he gained more knowledge through persistent effort and continuous industry, as well as through absolute obedience, his understanding of the universal laws continued to become more complete. Thus, he grew in experience and continued to grow until he attained the status of godhood. In other words, he became God by absolute obedience to all of the eternal laws of the gospel by conforming his actions to all truth and thereby became the author of eternal truth. Therefore, the road that the eternal father followed to godhood was one of living at all times a dynamic, industrious, and completely righteous life. There is no other way to exaltation. So, oh, wow. So what you see there is you, you see that illustration that there has to be something greater than God because God hasn't always been God. And so God is subject to these laws of the gospel or laws of the priesthood authority. And so what that means in flip side, if you turn that argument around, it means that the God that we worship is subject to other gods who are over him, and if he falls out of line, then he could be dethroned as God. And I, I believe that there's verses I've heard in the Book of Mormon that actually imply that. And um, so that that's a very, very radical view. And it, honestly, coming from a Christian perspective, it's a bit scary to believe that um, the God that you worship isn't, as the Old Testament calls him, the most high God. Yeah, that's, that's very disturbing. And so he was, uh, he gained exaltation. Uh, so what, and you basically have touched on this, but what must Mormons do to gain exaltation? Okay, um, so this is coming from their, their uh, basic manual in the LDS Church called Gospel Principles, uh, page 303 and 304, and uh, it's under the section requirements for exaltation. So they're not really pulling any punches on this one. And so you got a laundry list of things you need to do, going from anything from be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, become a member of the LDS Church, and then you got your temple work, you got to get your temple endowment, temple marriage, love and worship God, love our neighbor. And the one that gets me is complete repentance. 
because repentance isn't defined as a Christian would a change of mind or, you know, you turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. It's, it's actually, as Spencer Kimball in the book Miracle Forgiveness put it, it is the complete turning away from every sinful thought, word, and deed. And you know that you have repented when you don't do it ever again. And mm. so um, you throw that, even if that was the only thing that was on this list, that would be terrifying. And I, I know I, I can speak for myself, and I know you would probably say the same thing. This is the reason why um, I've never met an LDS person who's confident that they've actually been forgiven, that they actually know where they're going to stand come judgment day, that they, they feel that they've actually done what they have to do in order to earn God's favor. Wow. And yeah. So, Go you know, ahead. you've got all the word of wisdom, baptizing the dead, keeping the Sabbath, sacrament meetings, family life, prayer life, honor your parents, evangelize, study the scriptures, obey the prophet, tithe, keep the law of chastity. And so all of this stuff is just heaped on, upon the back of the LDS person. Let me ask you this. I know it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but just for my own curiosity, what do they mean by keeping the Sabbath? Uh, well, that, they would refer to Sundays. And uh, it used to be that the LDS church, that they would go to their ward meeting, which the ward is their local congregation. They would go to their ward meeting in the morning, and then they would kind of hang out together or maybe go home and do stuff as a family and then come back at night. And um, then that changed. And now what you have is a three hour block of uh, services and three broken up into three different meetings that they have in church. And, um, and it really, it just means that they're not supposed to work. And in fact, um, in that same book, Miracle Forgiveness, Spencer Kimball, he talked about um, how, Shameful it was in Utah that he would see store owners that would keep their stores open and that they were encouraging people to break the Sabbath. And even by encouraging, even if they weren't the one working, that they were breaking the Sabbath. Um, and, you know, when we lived in Utah, we got one of the biggest shocks of our life because we drove up to Provo, which from where we lived was about a two hour drive. And we thought, oh, you know, after church, we'll just go uh, and hang out and do some things up there. And we went to the mall and the entire mall was closed on Whoa. Sunday. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. I, it took me a while to get over that. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, Provo uh, where B, is where BYU is. And, and Provo does have a very, um, very distinct culture. It, it's very, uh, it's one of the, the most potent, you know, pr predominantly LDS areas, you know, where you're driving and you see the, the missionary mall, and the men's warehouse is advertising the clothes they have for missionaries. And then you have even a sister missionary mall. 
And, you know, you got all of that stuff going on in, in Provo. Okay. Huh. Okay. So uh, when I've had Mormons in my living room and I'm talking to them, they clearly have a different uh, definition of what they mean by uh, being saved by grace, uh, redemption. Uh, if you ask them, you know, do you believe in, in uh, what Christ did on the cross to save you from your sins? These types of things. They always say, yeah, yeah, of course, and they want to identify as Christians. Uh, what do they mean by saved by grace? What, you know, <clears throat> they seem to have their own terms, uh, or they'll take our terms and redefine them in their own way. And that's definitely, you hit it right on the head, and this is why it's so important, and it's important no matter who you're talking to, but especially if you're working with somebody who's LDS or Jehovah's Witness or coming from one of those groups, because um, they do use our terminology. And in fact, I think that it's becoming more and more like a studied science that they're learning how we talk as Christians and starting to emulate it in some ways that uh, seem very intentional. Uh, but when they, uh, when they talk about being saved by grace, and in fact, if you were to turn to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and you would read, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, and it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And they would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so what they're referring to is they have a difference between general salvation and individual salvation. General salvation is that they believe by Jesus' death on the cross and more specifically his resurrection from the dead, that through his resurrection, he made life available to all men. So whereas before we would have um, potentially, potentially died after um, this life, and that would have been it, Jesus made uh, eternal life or immortality possible. And so that's where that whole belief of, you know, Jesus basically opened up the heavens, uh, the three levels, and everybody basically goes to one for sure, except, you know, the, the outer darkness crowd. And so that's what they mean by general salvation. But as in terms of individual salvation... What they're referring to is what kind of law are you going to live your life by? And we talked about those eternal laws of the priesthood a little bit, and this is where it comes into play, is that if you are going to live your life by a celestial law, just a base level of humanity, and kind of just mowing over people and getting your own way, then the celestial kingdom is where you're going to go. And likewise, the terrestrial, um, if you're going to live your life by a good moral code, but just not be a part of the LDS church or you know, not go through the temple and not do some of those things, you're going to go to the terrestrial kingdom. And then the celestial kingdom is for those who take it serious. They go full bore and they somehow manage to rid themselves, deny themselves of all ungodliness as Moroni 10.32 in the Book of Mormon says, and they've become perfected in Christ, as that same verse says. And then, and only then, is the grace of God sufficient for them. Wow. So, I mean, this is a totally foreign concept to them, the, the biblical version of grace. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. They have no, in fact, um, when I talk with a lot of LDS, it seems to be something that's being taught in their church. They have defined for me grace as uh, divine empowerment. And I thought that was really strange because that has almost hmm. absolutely, I mean, yes, it, part of the grace of God is, you know, the Holy Spirit's empowerment in our life. That's part of the gift. But sure. that, that's not what grace means uh, in English or in Greek. Right, right. That, that's the difference between uh, justification and sanctification. Uh, at that moment at which we trust in Christ, we place our faith in what he did on that cross 2,000 years, <clears throat> taking the punishment that we deserve upon himself. Uh, at that moment that we trust in him and what he did, we are justified, we are saved. And if we die one minute later, we're saved. That's it. Uh, versus justification, there's this process that starts taking place uh, shortly after salvation where uh, the Lord starts convicting us of our sins and helping us clean up our life, clean up our act. And in that, the Holy Spirit also helps us to uh, overcome these various sins that we've we've held so long in our life. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, one of the seminars that, you know, I just kind of developed, I haven't been able to record it yet, but it's uh, communicating grace to the religious mind part two. Uh, because part of the problem is that um, there's a lot of Christians out there who kind of see this dichotomy that, yeah, we're saved by grace in terms of justification, but then after that, it's almost like it's up to us, and God will help it out a little bit, and when I really thought about it, that's not really different that much from what the LDS have actually been saying, and yeah. it's kind of scary. I mean, yeah, we, we wouldn't say, we, we would say, yeah, we're going to go to heaven, and, you know, um, some might be saved as through fire, like, you know, Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, but the more that I've actually studied this and what the Bible's actually saying, the gift of God is Jesus. And with Jesus comes eternal life, and it comes with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, actually indwelling of the entire Trinity, um, which is an entirely different subject. And it, Paul says, articulates it, that in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That literally the faith that we have is actually Jesus' faith. And you see the same terminology with the peace of God and, you know, the fruit of the Spirit. And what you see is actually a dynamic in which what God's desiring is that same faith, that same trust that got us salvation in a moment-by-moment, moment, choice by choice, decision-by-decision decision basis in which we set ourselves aside and we learn to allow God to live his life out through us, that Christ truly is life. And so what I found is that all of our desires to do good came from God. All of our motives that are correct and based off of love came from God. And the power um, 
not just even the physical ability, but the power source that we're connected to and the ability, the, the literal ability to rein in our emotions and our self-life all comes from God. And it's a gift of God. That, so when you hmm. really break it down, when we get to heaven, when he says, so that no one can boast, there's literally not going to be anybody who's going to be able to claim <laughs> anything good that they did. And I, it's come to the point where I've kind of realized in a way the, the Bible's actually saying the only thing that's going to end up in heaven is Jesus. Because uh, the things that we do that are so-called good works are actually Jesus doing them through us. Yeah, yeah. Our best works are as filthy rags. Exactly. Mm. You know, it, it's interesting that you're bringing this up. It, uh, you do see that same type of concept of overcoming sin, that salvation is, is more of just a an empowerment to overcome sin so that you can earn your salvation. You see that uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, and you yeah. also see that within the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower. That's <clears throat> so, okay, so how do we communicate this concept of biblical grace to uh, Mormons? Okay, well, um, the question that I really love to ask, and every time I've done a seminar, I ask this, even of Christians, and I find that people are all over the room, all over the place with this. And the question is this. Can you put these four things in order? And the four things are this. Faith, obedience, forgiveness, and grace. And I'd love to throw that out there. And I just listen to what the person's going to say. And then I'll just start asking some questions. And here's some of the questions that I might ask. Um, uh, with Mormons, I would say, okay, well, can you tell me, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And they'll probably go to, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Like Jesus quotes from the, the Shema in Matthew 22. And so then, you know, they, they love that you're going there because, you know, they want to quote, you know, be thou perfect, even as I am perfect, as your father in heaven is perfect. And, um, that they want to go there. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I want them to go there because there's a verse that has to do with grace that I don't think that we've really tapped into for all that it's worth. And, you know, we all, all know about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We know about Titus 3, 5, and we know about some of the others um, in Galatians. Um, but there's a verse in 1 John of all books. Um, in 1 John 4.18, here's what the Apostle John says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. In other words, you fear because you believe that person can really do something to punish you. And that he that feareth is not made perfect in love. So I, I take them back, you know, to the greatest commandment, which they just cited, and they said, well, the greatest commandment is to love God. But wait a minute. John says that if you cannot love God, 
if you fear him. And that fearing him has to do with punishment. And so um, here's a question, and it always breaks apart every single time. And inevitably, at some point in the conversation, it's going to go this direction. And the question is this. Do you know that you are forgiven? And I ask that question knowing what's going to come on the other end. And I've never had any LDS person that I've ever talked to say, yes, absolutely. Praise God. Yeah, Jesus forgave me of all my sins. Never once have I ever had that kind of response or reaction. Usually the reaction that I get at that point is, I hope so, or I think so, or I'm trying. And every time I hear my heart just breaks and sinks because this is the reason why it's so important that we don't let the opportunities pass us by. Um, you know, when Mormon missionaries come to our doors, it, it may not be a convenient time now, but don't, you know, arrange for a time for them to come back later. Yes, you're a Christian, and yes, you know you're going to heaven, but that person who's coming to your door does not. They don't know that. They don't have any assurance, and so then I take them again to First John. And First John 5.13 says... Uh, you know you are for, oh, okay. these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God and right there you've shown them that it is God's will and a book of the Bible was specifically written for the distinct purpose that we can know that we have eternal life. Now, if you go to a word, um, a word on Fast and Testimony Sunday, um, that's a particular Sunday that they do once a month in the LDS Church where everybody's supposed to fast, and then the whole service in sacrament meeting is just person after person going up to the mic of all ages and sharing their testimony, which basically consists of I know that the Mormon church is the one true church. I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. I know that this is his church, and I know that Thomas Monson is a prophet of God. And I'm so grateful for this church and what it's done for my family. But notice what's missing there. I've never heard an LDS testimony that says, includes in all of those no's, I know that I have eternal life. And right. if they were to share, and in fact, if you share that with them, because it's such a foreign concept to them, and you have even many people that are trying so hard. They are some of the nicest, dearest people that um, it blew our mind when we were in Utah. We were trying to reach out to these people who were killing us with kindness, you know, show up home and our, our our driveway would be shoveled when it was snowing <laughs> and then we would find out there was actually three people who tried to do it and then the other two didn't get there fast enough. I mean <laughs> you, you have to 
these people are trying so hard, and because they are, and they are very sincere, most of them. Yeah. If you say to them, I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I have eternal life. I know that when I die right now, I'm going to go to heaven. If you were to say that to them, it comes across and they see it as arrogance. And in fact, um, and a lot of their, their talks and, and things that their prophets and apostles have said, they've talked about this salvation by grace as a pernicious doctrine of the Reformation and that, you know, we aren't supposed to have a relationship with God and, you know, that that isn't the gospel. We have the restored gospel and they keep on driving that into them and kind of go back and forth with them and they play teeter-totter with them and they, they go from pounding them with commandments and obligations and duties and then the next general conference they'll come back and they'll ease up a bit and they'll talk about you know like well you know chances are most people are going to get into the celestial kingdom and then they'll come back and then they'll pound them and like if you're not perfect then you're not going to get anywhere and um, so it, it really is a heartbreaking thing but we need to help them understand grace and another thing I've I, found helpful is the, the the best comparison we have in our world is free. You know, when you're talking about gift, and maybe your gift is um, comparable to grace, but the word free also is supposed to communicate free. And Jesus says something very interesting to his disciples in John chapter 14. He says, I don't give to you the way the world gives. And then when he sends them out on their mission trip in Matthew 10, he qualifies that by saying, freely you have received, freely give. And so Jesus is telling us something, and, and actually I spent some time, and I started taking pictures every time I saw the word free. And what I found is that there's a reason why we have a love-hate relationship with this word free. When we the word free... We don't just immediately jump for joy and just go, you know, like expecting that you really mean that. We kind of, we get excited at the same time. It's immediately just let down because we realize, oh, it's not really free. And so here's some ways in which the world means free. It, we say free if you already have purchased enough on your end, you know. So like I used to be guilty my seminars and people would call me on it, I would say, you know, buy three DVDs and get the first one free. And they would go, wait <laughs> a minute, you talked some time about it. <laughs> and so now I've had to kind of train myself to say things like, you know, uh, buy three or get four for the price of three or, you know, and it's so unnatural even to say that because we want to say it because now it's going to invoke a reaction. Um, so free if you've already purchase free if you do enough on your end free but everything afterwards costs something free if you want it and so i, I noticed this pattern and i realized that the problem is even in the christian church we talk about grace but then we'll turn right around and we will confuse people because we will mix this language between gift and free and work and reward, and it's all kind of meshed in together, and we start sounding like the LDS Church does. 
And there's one verse I wanted to share with your listeners that, you know, everybody grab a pen and paper, you know, hit pause and a pen and paper. Write this down. Romans 11.6. Romans 11.6 is the clearest verse on grace in the entire Bible. And here's what Paul says. And Romans 4, 4 and 5 basically says the same thing and talking, comparing it to Abraham. Okay, so Romans 6 says, If by grace, and it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Mm. You can't get any clearer than that. Paul is saying definitively, you cannot mix work and grace. And so I'll ask them, you know, like, hey, do you have a job? You know, where do you work? Of course, if they're missionaries, that doesn't really work very well. Um, But, uh, you know, where do you work? And then they'll tell you a little bit about it. And I say, oh, okay. So let me ask you something. If you went and you put in your 40 hours, and you did everything that you were supposed to do in your job description, and you went into the boss's office, or maybe you just looked online, and you saw your paycheck, and then your boss came over to you and said, um, wow, how'd you get the gift? Or you know, maybe your response is, you, you stand your neck and you say, man, you shouldn't have. You know, that's the, the response that we give when somebody's given us gifts, you know, we're caught off guard and we're grateful, but it's not the response that we have to go to work and give us a paycheck. That's a contracted obligation and you fulfilled your part. And so your employer has to fulfill their part. And wise, the same thing is true on Christmas morning, you know, when the kids are all anxious and they wake up and they tear into the presents and then you say as their parents, okay, Now, as soon as you mow the lawn, you can have this presence. (laughs) It doesn't work. And I don't know of any LDS, you know, parents who operate this way, and I hope that they don't. And really what I'm getting at here is that you can help them understand through the relationships that they have and the dynamics of somebody who's offended them, are they supposed to just wait until the end of their life to see if they've truly repented of that action? Or are they supposed to forgive them to heal the relationship? <clears throat> and you can help them understand from all these other different spheres of life the difference between works and faith or, or grace and a gift. And um, so that's some of the approach that I, I've, I've taken. And really, it's just about getting them to think and getting them to talk about these things, come to the conclusions that their logical and their viewpoint just naturally is going to take them to. Um, it's really about that and helping them to start to say things, verbalize things that go contrary to what they've been taught. Because in that moment, they have a choice between what did Jesus say and what did Thomas Monson say? What did Jesus say and what, is, um, you know, what did Joseph Smith say? Right. Very clear choice. 
And that tears them apart size. But that's where you want them. But it's very important that you're there for them. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the outreaches that we have to some of these groups and even just in general, like it's kind of like a, a blitz. And then we come in and we just, you know, knock them down. And, and all of a sudden we leave. And now they're saying, wait a minute, maybe Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet. Maybe this is a true church. Maybe the Book of Mormon isn't true. And they're having these questions and these thoughts, but you've just left them and they can't go to their they can't go to their friends because they're going to face, you know, possible discipline or maybe they get removed from their boasts, their reputations on the line. And definitely if they leave the church, I've, I've talked with so many spouses who the bishops have counseled their wives or their husbands to leave them after the Christianity because, you know, people who have left their job lost jobs, people who've told me they just had to move out of Utah because it was just much, they couldn't take it anymore after they left it. And so, and the other thing that happens is there's a good deal of people who are even the Mormon church, but they're becoming atheists and agnostics. And it's really understandable because anytime you've had the complete rug pulled out from everything that you've Everything that you've held sacred, everything that you've been told, and you've put trust in all these people and organizations, it's totally understandable that they just not want to trust anything anymore. And the sad thing about the LDS Church in particular is that they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. They swear up and down that they're Christian, just like us. But when somebody leaves the church, if they tell them, you know, I've accepted Jesus, I've been born again, I'm forgiven, and you know what, I, my family has started to attend the Baptist Church downtown, or the Presbyterian, or the Methodist. They don't say, oh, praise God! You know, <laughs> and they pray for them, and, and then they, they wish them well. They, they don't say those things. They condemn them, and they tell them that if they don't come back to the church that they are condemned and how backwards is that man that what a head trip i mean really hmm Uh, jason tell me about your your website people of the free gift.com uh there are some uh resources on here of course there is the six part uh dvd series it's more of a DVD-ROM series, right. um, and uh, really, what we're talking about today is is loosely based on many of these these uh, DVDs. Reaching out to your Mormon neighbor. Uh, tell me about that series, and also tell me about this passion seminar. Okay, um, so first of all, what I want, what I want to say is this whole thing about grace has really influenced us in terms of uh, our desire with this ministry is we want to get everything that we do out completely free and make it available. And through today's world, we have the miracle of things like YouTube and, you know, uh, like you use Sermon Audio all the time. And then um, there's like Google Docs and websites and Facebook. And 
All of our stuff is on there. So if you go to peoplethefreegift.com, that's probably the, the, the best way to get an all, you know, one stop app because on the homepage, you'll see all the links to the media. And then, uh, like Michael said, you'll see our different seminars that we offer, and um, we don't charge a fee. So if there's any pastors listening to us, um, we leave it completely. Everything that we do, we leave up to between you and God, between the church and God, and the individual believers in God when we come. And, um, and we just want to get this message out, and we want to bless people. So everything's available for free, but if you feel that, and if you're in a position... We do accept donations, and um, with those donations, um, I'm trying, I think I set up PayPal correctly, um, but I'm not quite sure, um, but you can see the link on there if you want to donate, and if you want one of the resources um, or some of the resources in, in a physical copy, you know, just drop us a note, let us know which one, just give us your address, we'll get it out to you, but we really want to be a freely you have received, freely gives type of ministry. Um, and so with that said, the seven uh, or the six DVD set Michael mentions, it deals with the, the same conversations that I find myself having over and over and over again. Um, the first session, uh, it deals with what do you do when the LDS you're talking to says, oh, I'm a Christian too. And that happens all the time, and if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen. And so, basically, the approach I've taken is going through the teachings of Jesus, because what the LDS said in that moment is Jesus is our common uh, ground. And so I invite them, and, oh, that's awesome. So you would say that you follow the teachings of Jesus, right? And they say, oh, absolutely. So I'd say, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus, and I'd love to sit down and just open up the Word of God and, and just the words of Jesus and just hear what you have to say about these things and, and your point of view. So that's that one. Session two is a um, similar question. Missionaries always ask you, they come with their Book of Mormon, and they leave a couple of highlighted passages that they want you to read for the next time, and they tell you, read it, and Moroni 10.4 from the Book of Mormon, we want you to pray about it, and ask God if it's true. And so what do you do when they say, have you prayed about the Book of Mormon? And so what we do is I take a similar approach as I did with session one, except now, what they've just said is that everything in the Book of Mormon, they believe and they agree with. And so I encourage you to get them to share their testimony in the Book of Mormon and ask, clarify it. Do you believe everything in the Book of Mormon? And then we go through scriptures in the Book of Mormon. Most Christians don't know this, but the Book of Mormon actually is more comparable to ninth. 19th century Christianity and all of the issues that were on the table then, then it is current LDS doctrine. And so you can walk them to that, and it basically says almost all the same things that we just discovered Jesus says in their own Book of Mormon. And so it forced them again to make that decision, what am I going to believe? So session three, we get into to why should I trust the Bible? The, the Mormons say they believe in the Bible as far as it's translated correctly. Technically, the Book of Mormon says 
that pen and pressures were removed during the apostasy of the church, and um, that the restoration of the church and technically the Book of Mormon is supposed to restore those truths. So we asked, why should I trust the Bible? And then in session four, it's communicating grace to the religious mind, which goes over a lot of the things that we talked about just now. And how do you uh, communicate grace to somebody who just doesn't understand it? And session five, got the Trinity. And how do you get somebody who thinks that the Trinity is like a three-headed monster uh, to understand what we're talking about, especially when a lot of Christians don't really know what how to articulate very clearly. So uh, we take a very practical approach in as well as a very biblical approach to it. And so you might find that helpful. And uh, then session six is what is faith? What is the Bible's faith? And this has to do with that whole, um, you know, trusting in your heart and burning in the book thing that the Mormons um, trust in. And uh, what does the Bible actually say that faith is? And so then the Passion of the Christ um, seminar is another seminar we offer, and years ago when I was a senior pastor of a church in the Mormon series, uh, it was like, I don't know how many weeks are on that thing, um, but as uh, different sermons going through what did Jesus accomplish on the cross, and all of the, the different things that the scriptures say, you know, like he absorbed the wrath of God, or, or he uh, secured the forgiveness of our sins, or, you know, great high priest and our, the redemption and the redeemer all of those things you know what things mean really dive into that and it really I think it's helpful in, in terms of reaching LDS because um, if you can take them in depth into your cross and what actually happened there because they really don't like the cross they don't play it they don't have any crosses in their churches they believe they teach technically that Jesus bore our sins in the garden of Gethsemane um, so really being able to just dive in with them and go through what did Jesus actually do for us on the cross and so that's what that one is and I'm in the midst of posting all my sermons previously from Acts and Paul's letters and going through all of those books of the Bible um, and putting those together for you. And um, I'm just going to keep on posting stuff for free. And then when I do, I'll add it to the website and the order form for those who want a physical copy um, have. Awesome. Uh, well, Jason, we'll definitely be having you on again next week. Uh, but yeah, thanks for coming on the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Michael. I've been listening to pretty much all of your podcasts, and I'm a big fan. <laughs> That's an honor. Thank you. All right, and I'm going to stop right there. Uh, again, yeah, next week we're going to have Jason Oaks back. Again, that's Jason Oaks of People the Free Gift. Uh, the second half is even more fun than the first half. And so don't miss out on that. Uh, and with that, well, I love you guys, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>